the framework we use about civic engagement is broader than just that formal volunteering. That is a critical part of our democracy, of our civil society. We all know have been volunteers. We've been recipients of people who are volunteers and our organizations, our civil society would not exist without that. But it is true that things are changing. And so in that wake of a decline in formal volunteerism, Points of Light is believed and has started to put the research behind what does civic engagement look like today? Have you ever noticed that some of the best ideas come from unexpected places? Your next breakthrough may come from a leader facing similar challenges, but in a completely different sector. Welcome to Chief Influencer. I'm your host, Anthony Shop. Join us as we explore how today's successful leaders inspire, influence, and connect with others. Chief Influencer is a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board, who have teamed up to spotlight how great leaders and communicators are making their impact in the world. This episode is brought to you by the George Washington University's College of Professional Studies. With in-person and online programs, ranging from master's degrees in public relations strategy to certificate programs in digital communications, GW offers more than just the credentials to help working professionals get ahead. It prepares them to be leaders in their field. As a proud GW graduate myself, I can attest that faculty members combine academic rigor with real-world lessons that can't always be found in textbooks. Check out cps.gwu.edu for more information. I'm so excited to introduce today's guest, Jennifer Sarangelo. Jennifer is the president and CEO of Points of Light. She's passionate about unlocking human potential for good and believes everyone has unique gifts to share with the world. Jennifer has focused her career as a transformational NGO executive leader on empowering people to create positive change on both a local and a global scale. At Points of Light, Jennifer leads the presidential legacy organization focused on inspiring, equipping, and mobilizing people to take action that changes the world. Through their global network of NGOs in 39 countries, hundreds of corporate partners, and individuals making a difference, they're leading the resurgence of volunteerism to empower people and heal our humanity. Jennifer was most recently an executive leader at National 4-H Council for 17 years, including nearly 10 years as president and CEO. 4-H has a complex network of 3,000 state and local 4-H programs that serve 4 million youth. And during Jennifer's tenure, the National 4-H Council's revenue grew sustainably by 10 times over. A vocal and visible champion of DEI, she led the organization in raising millions of dollars in equity funding over 15 years for HBCU 4-H programs. Prior to National 4-H Council, Jennifer served in a variety of leadership roles at Boys and Girls Clubs of America. Jennifer is the recipient of the Gold Stevie Female Executive of the Year Award for Women in Business, and she was named to Fast Company's annual list of the 100 most creative people in business. She's a member of Fortune's Most Powerful Women and the Forbes Nonprofit Council. Additionally, Jennifer serves as a council chair for the America 250 Foundation and is a Farm Foundation Roundtable Fellow. She holds a Master's of Public Administration, from Syracuse University and a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science and Communication from my own alma mater, William Jewell College, where she was a recipient of the prestigious Harry S. Truman Scholarship. Like me, you're from my hometown, Kansas City, Jennifer. And you know, you've been called many things. We've heard many of these wonderful accolades and awards, but today we call you a chief influencer and we're so excited to have you. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. 
Well, Jennifer, we have so much that we can talk about, and uh, I'm really excited to dig in. But, you know, I happen to know, uh, because of our personal connection, that you actually took on your first executive director role when you were only 23 years old. So I wonder if you could just kind of start the story there. And I'm really excited to know, what do you wish you knew at 23 that you now know, having so much leadership experience under your belt? Well, it's so great to be here. Thank you. I love visiting with a fellow Midwesterner, Kansas City, and we won't talk about our sports teams today, but um, <laughs> we're excited about that. But um, well, yes, I led a, I, I think that my, my, as I look back on it, I think they must have been desperate because why would you hire a 23 year old right out of college? Um, but it was a small organization and I got to do everything and I'll just, you know, I got to write the, I, I did the, um, I, I did the 990, I did the accounting, I wrote the newsletter. Um, I had, I had a small team, but, um, it was a great learning experience. And I actually, as I coach and mentor people that are thinking about a nonprofit career, I, I always encourage them to work in a smaller organization. When you get to a national organization, we have to specialize. There's so much to do. And um, and I when I meet young people, I'm like, don't don't discount that that um, opportunity to well, really work and and be the jack of all trades and try a lot of things. But what I wish I knew, um, back to that story, is I wish I would have known to trust my instincts. And I was too young to really trust myself um, when I would, um, you know, someone would be trying to sell me something and I was like, doesn't seem right. Or um, a, you know, a partner that, um, you know, wasn't being honest with us about things. I, I wish I had trusted my instincts. And I think over the years, that's something I've really learned. I feel like we have that as humans, we have that gut um for a reason and um and it's it's mostly right it's mostly right I, it's never really let me down but i didn't have that much i hadn't tried that enough uh as 23 to be able to trust myself that that courage or confidence to believe in yourself yeah. it sounds like is something that maybe you develop more as you um learn that that instinct is right 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 and we had a lot to do. It was a lot about people and trusting people. And so um, that's an area that I think you can really, you really do have to trust yourself. So um, I'm glad we, I'm glad to remember that time and think I've made some progress along the way, I hope. Well, you sure have. You have accomplished a lot. And, you know, now at Points of Light, I mean, a lot of folks may know about Points of Light already, but I'd love for you to tell us a bit more about it. And in particular, you have to, like many leaders, but you especially have a range of stakeholders that you have to keep in mind um, with such a, a broad network. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the various stakeholders and who are some of the most important ones that you have to figure out as a leader that you're able to influence and serve through your organization? Yes. Well, I'll start with... Um... We are the, as you said, you told a little bit about who we are, but we're the largest uh, organization in the world focused on fostering um, volunteerism and civic engagement. And so it's really, uh, it's an awesome honor and a responsibility to be a legacy organization of a, a former president. And, um, and it's very exciting to 
uh, have so many stakeholders. So, but in the in my world, in the nonprofit leadership world, we have board members. So uh, I report and am accountable to a nonprofit board of volunteers. So people that volunteer their time, and they hold the public trust of our our charity. And um, I am their sole employee, and I am you know my job is to carry out you know their strategic vision and do it ethically and. Um, in a way that really honors our mission. So um, they're a really important set of stakeholders. Um, we also, uh, in an organization that's global, you have a set of affiliates or organizations that have chosen voluntarily to affiliate with you because they align with the values. They want to be a part of an organization that's bigger. They want to learn from their peers, but they have very different needs. And we certainly see that in a global and a U.S. domestic um, combination because our philanthropy and giving landscape is very different than in many places around the world. So the the way uh, NGO operates and the needs they have, um, there's much that's the same, but there is there is also things that are different and we can't ignore that. So um, we that's another set of our stakeholders. We also have all the or NGOs in the United States that aren't even affiliated with us, but we really do want to be generous and support them, almost open source what we have about fostering civic engagement. And it's so needed right now. We can talk about that if you want. Um, but we have that group as well that are not necessarily affiliated, but we're a part of the family. We're a part of the movement to um, really uh, unlock um, the power of human capital to um, to decrease our loneliness epidemic, to address that, to reduce polarization and heal our divides, and to solve local problems. So we're in that unlocking um, mode, and it takes a lot of partners. So we have a, a number. But we I also one thing that's unique. Last thing I just want to share. Yeah, yeah. One thing that's unique. We also have our daily points of light which are the individual everyday Americans that we recognize every single day, every single weekday, for the extraordinary contributions they're making um, to their communities. Many of them are social entrepreneurs, they're founders, they've started up a nonprofit to meet a need in their community, and they're amazing. And they're another constituency that we have. I wanna go into civic engagement, but maybe just say a little bit more about the daily points of light, because I think that yeah. that's, um isn't that the coolest thing? So it's um, if, if those of you that may remember President Bush's inauguration address in 1989, he talked about 1990, actually. He talked about how um, he talked about his vision of unlocking service as a definition of a successful life, that every American really to have a successful life, you need to be serving others. And his vision was that we would see a thousand points of light and each person, when they do that, is a point of light. Well, I'm so proud that um, we have kept that going um, every weekday since his presidency. And we now, we I think I just gave 7,725. Um, we've given over 7,000 point of light awards to families, to institutions, to people. And we get so many nominations every year. I hope anybody on this um hearing this podcast would be interested in going to our website and at pointsoflight.org and you can nominate someone to be a point of light. And it is, um, 
they are an amazing group of people and uh, they're social entrepreneurs that um, we are supporting. You know, it's such a cool, I'd like to even just spend another minute on this because when I think about how leaders might serve a really broad network, you know, it could be a membership association or it could be a hospital in a community or a, you know, a head of a school district. Um, they're often looking for ways to engage, you know, such a broad group of people. And the way that you have done that by keeping that tradition alive with the daily uh, points of light and with the award is just so cool. And obviously that has evolved a lot since the Bush presidency when most of us probably didn't even have email accounts to now when we live in such a digital world. So can you just talk a little bit about what it means for someone to get that award and how getting that award gets your powerful message of service out broadly, but also into communities that you might not otherwise be able to reach? Right. Well, let me start with research shows that you know, recognition is a very powerful part of cultural change. What we recognize, who we honor, think about all the award shows we have, all those things, they are for a reason. And, and this daily point of light was really visionary when the president realized he wanted to change, he wanted to move, make culture change. He wanted to add service to that de definition of success in America. And, or, and we've always had it, but he wanted to highlight it. It was very important to him and his family. And so um, that recognition is critical and all the research shows that's a big, big part of it. So what happens, I've met with many daily points of light and um, they tell me the number one thing is that being recognized gave them, helped them stand out um, among a crowded field of nonprofits. We know there's a proliferation of nonprofits, which is great. People are solving local problems. But for them, it was a stand. It was a, a standout. They also got to join a community of support, so they got to meet other founders, other people, um, learn from them um, through our conferences and other gatherings that we do. And they, they, that's what they they asked me for what what they want more from us. They said we would love more of that opportunity to kind of build our capabilities, continue. You know, I I started this. Um, I, I met a woman who started a feeding program. She started it because her neighborhood kids needed it. She didn't start it because she knew how to lead a nonprofit. So she, when she met me, she was picking my brain about what you do, how you grow, how you work with the board, how you tell your story, and um, so it's very. Um, that's what they get from being a daily point of light. Is certainly the recognition, but. More important is that community and that ability to be better at what they do and to have support around them. I love that. And one of the things folks will see is, you know, often what do they do? They share it on social media, right? Their families yeah. are proud of them. And so that recognition that <clears throat> you bestow on them, it helps to raise awareness of your movement and what you're doing as well. So it sort of has it is, a two-way street. And I give the president real credit because it is the today, it is still daily point of light it started and what is the only daily recognition of everyday Americans from the White House that's ever existed. Hmm. And it's just, I'm very proud that the organizations kept it going and um, and we will continue to do that. Oh, that's great. I just, uh, 
I, it, to me, it sparks, you know, what we want to do with Chief Influencer is sort of spark ideas for other leaders and other communicators about things that they might be able to bring home to their organization. And I have a feeling this is one. We'll get feedback well, on because I think, think about influencing volunteerism and civic engagement. We have to recognize it, recognize yes. the excellence, tell the stories. Yeah. So it's been it's been brilliant and uh, keeps going. Well, and along the lines of civic engagement, I mean, I think the media narrative is that that's you know, there's a crisis in that area, the, you know, the whole bowling alone sort of uh, phenomenon. And what you're doing is you're, you're sort of showcasing areas where there are bright spots, where there are these points of light and where um, good things are happening. But I'd love to just, you know, hear your thoughts on how the civic engagement has changed over the last few decades. And um, what are you doing? What is your organization doing to influence folks to address that, you know, if it is indeed a crisis? Well, it is, uh, you're not wrong. Um, in fact, the latest uh, report out of AmeriCorps um, shared with us that, or we learned that vol formal volunteering. So, um, you know, you, you know, having a, a Tuesday appointment to work at um, a, you know, a nonprofit to help out, to do tutoring or um, help with uh, a food bank that kind of formal volunteering is down by 7% year over year from 21 to 2022. And, and that's just one small statistic. It's a combination of that and our giving as Americans is going down. Fewer givers, fewer total gifts, fewer lower amounts given. And these are, while they might seem like small numbers, those are indicators of a cultural shift. And, and we're still discerning. I want to be honest, Anthony, you know, there's um, part of it is that's true about formal volunteering, but our research has also shown up points of light, something um, we've produced, we've, we've talked about in a framework we use about civic engagement is broader than just that formal volunteering. That is a critical part of our democracy, of our civil society. We all know have been volunteers. We've been recipients of people who are volunteers and our organizations, our civil society would not exist without that. But it is true that things are changing. Um, and so in that wake of a decline in formal volunteerism, Points of Light has believed and has um, started to put the research behind what is that total, what does civic engagement look like today? And we we have a framework called the Civic Circle, and you may have seen you can see that on our website at pointsoflight.org. And it really um, is a more modern look at how people engage civically, and it values all the parts of that. And it's um, so it includes things like listening and learning. And think about after George Floyd, and one of the things that we could do as citizens was learn, mm. learn about the experience of a group different than me. And while that doesn't sound like traditional volunteering or civic engagement, it is. It's getting out of your comfort zone and learning and listening to others, as an example. The proliferation of ways to donate at their register, the proliferation of nonprofit careers. When I started out back when I did, there wasn't degrees in nonprofit. You know, we didn't even have this industry. So it's exciting that you can choose to make your career in giving and helping others um, over time. Um, so there's many, our, our framework has many aspects. You can see them there. It's also, you know, voting and um, 
advocacy, you know, being a part of a petition, making your voice heard, participating in a rally. So those are, uh, the package is big. The civic circle kind of creates a framework for it. And it means really everyone can engage. You don't even have to get out of your house to do it. Um, it's better if you do. Bowling Alone will tell you that. And, um, you know, it's better when we do it together. We're built for community as humans. Uh, biologically, we're built for that. And that's one of the reasons that we believe turning this tide of formal volunteerism declining has got to change. We're sounding the alarm here at Points of Light because there's a reason we have an epidemic of loneliness. And this is one contributor to that and helping others, engaging with others to help those in your community is one of the ways we can turn that tide. So um, I hope that helps you kind of yeah. understand where we stand on the future. Um, I also would love to talk about Gen Z when you're ready and we we can talk about that. Yeah, well, first, I think the framework is a really cool way to just to look at, okay, it's it's a problem, but at the same time, we might not be measuring what civic engagement is the same way that we used to. And it's important to look at all those other factors that you mentioned. So I absolutely love that. Um, I wanted to, I think this ties into Gen Z, but I wanted to ask you just how you have, what you have found are important ways to break through with the audiences that you're trying to reach across your career. And that is a younger audience as well. Um, what are some of the strategies or the tactics that you have found that you could sort of thread through your experience for age boys and girls club where you are now points of light? Right. Well, one of the things as a leader that I've really learned, and this is like definitely fast forwarding from uh, the small organization I started in, but is really about the importance of listening and uh, learning. So that part of the civic circle really resonates with me. Um, and and I've learned a little bit some tactics about how to do it. So let me just give you like the real world example. When you're the CEO of a youth develop a large you know youth development organization. It's really easy to get, you know, I'm in DC, I'm meeting with Congress, I'm meeting with us, but you know, I needed to stay connected to the young people. And I actually, my career in youth development spanned, but the first kids we were serving were millennials and now they're the parents of the kids. So I was there, I was in youth development long enough that I went through one generation actually. Um, but, oh, and their needs changed over time. Like I remember the day that bullying, like the youth came to uh, our our center for one of our conferences and they started talking about bullying and in a different way than I had experienced it as a young person. Um, and then of course, it's all accelerated as we now get into a digital age, but that was even before cell phones that that came up as a, as a problem. It was actually driven, the kids felt like it was very much driven by the media. But anyway, back to listening. So I have created, I really was intentional as a leader in youth development to really ensure I block time and I found authentic opportunities to listen to young people where they are. So I would travel to, I, I, I as an example, I traveled to West Virginia when really the opioid epidemic was getting really scary. And um, I asked the team to, you know, the people, our, our, our folks in West Virginia, I said, I just want to listen to the kids. Let's do it. So they really did a great job as an example. This I've learned that the setting and the timing and the way you approach that listening really matters. So I've done those kinds of sessions when I'm in a conference room in a hotel on the side of a youth conference. So we're sitting in a hotel on a table 
and the young people just freeze up. You know, they're like, I'm meeting with the CEO and they just freeze up and they answer my questions, but it's really, it was, I, I was, I was like, this isn't what I want to get to. So I learned to start with a couple of things. I started with what I thought we could all have in common. So I would do introductions and I would say, I'm a big sister. I have three siblings and everyone, the kids would go around. Everybody could answer. I'm an only, I'm an, I'm two, I'm a little sister. That kind of find the common ground for the very beginning of the listening. And I learned that tactic and I used it and it worked all the time. So we would start with kind of our family, you know, where do I fit in my family and how does that impact how I, you know, I'm involved in my, in my 4-H activities. Um, so that was one thing I, I did. The other was, I also learned that, so the less formal I could get it, the better. And that's hard to do when you're the CEO and everyone wants to make things really nice for you and they want to have flowers on the table and they want to be on their best behavior. But I learned a, a way to do it was to block the time in two ways. We we had to have that formal time around the table and let everybody introduce and, and talk about the issues. But I always, I learned a couple of, actually by accident, it was from West Virginia, that once you break from that, we were actually at a picnic when I did the one, in, when I did a listening session in West Virginia around opioids and how it was affecting the kids. And we were outside and, and it was informal. But as soon as we broke the formal listening and we were no longer in a group, the young people started coming up to me one by one and kind of tugging on my sleeve. I, I now I want to tell you what's really happened, they would say. And you know, they told me about their friend who had just lost their dad to opioids or the backpacks that they built for the kids to take home because they didn't have food on the weekends because their parents were on on are dealing with opioid addiction. So I learned that I needed to do a, a, a two-part listening. I needed to create the formal time to, you know, really get through some of the, let them meet me and learn to trust me. But then I had to leave time for that informal. I had another example really, really quick I'll share from a, a Native American base. I was in court, a Native American reservation. I was in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, meeting with young people and hearing about their civic engagement. And they were so proud of a crossing, street crossing, that they had gotten in on their reservation across a four-lane highway where the kids, everybody lived on one side of the highway and the school was on the other. And it was so unsafe and the kids felt so empowered that they had solved this problem. So we did all the table around. And as soon as we walked out the door, they wanted to show us the crossing. So walked out the door and it was on that conversation when we really learned about what they were dealing with, what their schools were like, what their other friends were dealing with. So those are just two examples of listening and learning and how it's played out for me and, and youth development. You know, I think those are such great examples, Jennifer, because um, you forget sometimes that just bringing people in a room to a table and saying, okay, now you can share something, the formality of that, you know, folks may not feel completely comfortable. And I think that's even probably always with a lot of people with youth, but especially now I've noticed you know, I was at a small event recently and someone said to me, um, they were really nervous before the event because it was the first kind of in-person event with even over like 10 people that they had been to for a long time. And, you know, it just was kind of out of their comfort zone. And it was, it was kind of a wake up call to me like, oh, okay. Cause that's not, that's my comfort zone. So I just didn't even 
think about that. So the fact that you've sort of designed that, I think is powerful. And what I'm wondering is what advice you have for leaders who might say, okay, I can think about how to do that in a physical space. Now I have this added challenge of we're in a hybrid or remote environment. And so, you know, maybe I can't just run into somebody in the office or have an informal chat like that. Do you have any feedback or advice about how you've done that either inside of your organizations or outside of your organization um, in kind of today's new dynamic? Yes, yes, I do. So coming, I've, I've recently joined Points of Light and it is a remote first organization. And so we are, uh, each of us is working at, in our home office. And so it, as a leader, it's a bit intimidating to try to figure out how to create those spaces to listen to your team and learn what's really happening. So I'm very grateful to my team for doing such a great job of creating a number of spaces for me. But the one that I, I would say is a, the one that means the most to me right now is that I have um, blocked um, Fridays. I have a, a I can open office. I'm sure a lot of leaders do these kind of things, but it's been really fun. I do an open office and I can do a one-on-one -on -one with staff so they can choose. It's optional. They can, I've got them, you know, the spaces available. They can sign up and it's really the agenda is theirs. And it's really kind of designed to replace the water cooler because we don't have one anymore. And, um, but as a leader, it's just critical that I can hear what's going on. And it's been so fun to see how very different each one is. I've had some where it was totally social. We didn't talk about one work thing. We only talked about um, things we liked, what our vacation was going to be. You know, we were talking about our families and it was, that, that was all it was. I had one where it was amazing. I want to tell this story. You'll love this. So this is kind of the power of what happens when you give space to listen. So we have a customer service division uh, team at Points of Light who takes the calls from the public and the emails and the chat. Because we have these awards, we have a presidential legacy, we've got all these affiliates. There's a lot of, you know, just incoming, right? Requests and information. There are our customer service team. There's just two of them. And I got an email. Well, first of all, the head of our customer service team, she was one of the ones that took one of my first appointments. So she ta taught me more what they were doing. I She told me about her interests and in growing in the organization. Like she was there to make sure I knew who she was and what she, you know, what she could contribute. And I loved it. It was great. So then, then a few months later, weeks later, she sent out like a general email that is her monthly update about their customer service rating being at 94%. And I was like, what? So I called her after that. I learned more about it. They do a thousand, they get a thousand incoming a month. I was like, this is crazy. That's amazing. So at our next board meeting, when I did highlights from the staff, I highlighted our customer service team and the board was like, we've never had this team. Can we call them? I was like, well, yes, we can call them. They answer the phone every day. So in the board meeting, our board chair is Neil Bush. He called the customer service and talked to our staff. They were thrilled. They were, they got our board, got on a cell phone and got to thank them. And it was just so awesome. And that never would have if I hadn't, you know, if my team hadn't created that space for yeah. me to have those listening sessions. So 
it's a crazy story, but lots of, but it's, it's part of what builds culture that builds appreciation. And for me as a leader, it's just essential that I have those opportunities to hear and listen throughout the organization. Oh, I love that. Uh, I'm wondering, do you, when you kind of put a space for people to sort of raise their hand and opt in, you know, some people might be shy or they might kind of think, well, should I only come if I have a problem or something like that? So how do you communicate out to your team? Because because they do it, they sign up. And I'm just wondering, how do you kind of communicate that out and message that so that um, folks feel comfortable? Because I'm sure some people might, you know, there might be a little barrier there that they have to overcome in some cases. For sure. Oh, I totally agree with that. So what's helped is I have a great HR team, but they make the invitation, not me. And they also create, they also gave some sample questions like topic. So many of them come into the meeting, they've read that, they've read that communication and they're like, well, I know they said we could talk about this, but can I talk about this? But it just having that framework, yeah. so it's not just open-ended, has helped, I think, them, yeah. especially folks that are more shy. But I will share with you, it is not there, it's the introverts are actually more of the people that are joining these calls. Okay. And I think it's because it's, they can plan and prepare and yeah. they can, um, and they cannot feel like they have to compete for time with me, that, with people that are more comfortable uh, bringing up topics. So it's been yeah. interesting that I feel like it's people that lean more to the intro, introvert kind of personality type. So I couldn't be happier with um, with the opportunity I have to meet the staff this way. Well, and I have to say, I mean, you mentioned, you know, oh, I'm sure others do this too, but I don't know that uh, that many leaders uh, do that. I, you know, I'm sure some do, but I think it's it's actually a really special and um, kind of rare thing. And so, but obviously you can hear the results and it's a really good takeaway for all of us to think about. Are we creating that space, whether it's our own team yeah. or it could be another stakeholder group? that listen, you know, we have to listen to learn. We have to listen to be able to adapt and meet the needs. And so we, so you do the listening, what comes out of that? What have you sort of found and what are you thinking about um, right. after you get these inputs? Well, I want to say just one more thing about making the time, just the practical, you know, yes. I just want to share the practical kind of calculus I used about this. So I don't want to make it sound like I'm doing this. I do it an hour two to three times a month on a Friday and they're half an hour yeah. slots. So I, what I thought about the calculus of it was that I used to do walking around, especially on Fridays. I would, it was a little quieter day. I would walk around the office and I would spend an hour just saying hi to people, checking in, you know, walking around. So I'm like, well, I don't have that privilege anymore. So instead, let me put that hour into a little more focused time on, on individuals. So I will be honest, it's not overwhelming in my schedule and it, because I've, I've, I've put the guardrails around it and, and it has, you know, really reaped rewards. So for me, what it also um, has, has done is I will be, it's, it's increased my empathy for my staff um, on some of the policies, some of the um, just things we do, how we uh, run our meetings, um, how we handle our workload, how the different constituencies impact them. So I think that's probably the biggest thing is that I feel like I understand their experience as an employee more. And that is really hard to do as a CEO because everyone treats you different 
than they do everyone else in the organization. It's very hard. And there's times that I've been blindsided because I didn't know that was happening because it didn't happen to me. Right. It's happening to everyone else. Yeah. So this is one way I'm trying to, you know, kind of counterbalance that because it's a natural thing that people put their best foot forward with the CEO. And um, so I, I just, that's what I would say is it's helped me get a little better picture. And it's interesting. They have, I think HR was a little worried that they might be complaint sessions. <laughs> they have not been that at all, at all. It's more, I'm just discovering what they do, how they do their work. And I'm making those, I'm making those connections to the policies. They're not coming to me about policy. I'm making the connections as I learn about their experience. So it's been better than I thought it would be. That's amazing. So all this listening happens externally. You shared the examples about, um, you know, kind of being out in the field and then internally. And I know, you know, you and I were talking recently about kind of one of these these trends that folks are talking about and sort of giving language to how you apply that. I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit. Yes, yes. So um, another way we, you know, the way we're, we engage, I would really call this more of an engagement, especially when you're in, an, in a nonprofit part of your role as a leader, every leader in our, in our organization is a, is a part of um, enrolling people in our, you know, encouraging them to join us, join us in this cause and this mission. And so one thing that um, we're doing, we do um, at Points of Light, and we're even kind of doubling down on in this environment of so much happening in the external environment, especially, you know, digitally and visually, we are um, really embracing the trend of personalization. So personalization of the experience of a board member. And the what we we ask the first question when we gather our board for a meeting is what will their ex, what is their experience at this board meeting? And I the first question I ask is when they make their phone call that night after our meeting or they're they're going home and they're talking with their significant other, their partner. What will they say? What will be the takeaway that they say, you know, your someone says, oh, how was your, how was your points of life board meeting? I always think, what is the experience, the insight, the knowledge gain, the relationship built yeah. that they will say to that partner when they say, oh, this is what happened when I was at the points of life board meeting. I learned about this, or we met this person, or I went on this you know, this tour, I, I got to know our mission better. Um, that I always think we think about that experience. And then we take that, that's a group experience. And then we take that to the personal level with a plan for each of our board members. For We have to know them. We have to listen and know what they care about, why they've joined our board. And then we personalize an experience. We personalize their experience throughout the year how they can help us with their different duties as a board member from advocacy to uh, giving, to telling the story, to their fiduciaries, all of that in their committee roles. And then we kind of create an individual plan. We talk about it with them at the beginning of the year. And we say, this is kind of what we are thinking would be the ways that you could contribute, use your time most wisely. And they give us feedback. And we alter it, we work on it, but it's something we create together. So 
it's not, they kind of know the year ahead what we're, we're going to want them to show up and give a daily point of light. We're going to want them to speak at our conference. We uh, want to talk with their company about this investment, that kind of thing. So that personalization is something that we're really focused on. It's a, it's a trend in CPG and all companies. We see it in the marketing we get as consumers, and uh, we're just applying it in the nonprofit realm. Yeah, and I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts a little bit more on this, specifically around how technology, you know, AI, but other technology as well, has made it much faster to, quote, personalize things, right? Um, and at the same time, it means there's a lot more people doing it. We're getting bombarded with a lot more messages. And, you know, so there's this sort of balance that we, you know, want to maintain the the human touch. But at the same time, you know, digital gives us the ability to reach. Um, so just love to hear your thoughts on that, particularly because the network that you're reaching is extremely broad. I mean, you have folks everywhere. And and um, so, so how, how do you approach that? And what kind of philosophy are you bringing to that as a leader? Yes, I think we have a long way to go with a lot of the technology, but I will say personally, just as a leader, what I'm experiencing is much more personalization of um, outreach to me. And, and it's, I'm starting to learn what's happening. <laughs> I think um, it's changing. It's changed over time and changing very quickly about, um, you know, companies reaching out, wanting to, you know, sell their services and that kind of thing. But I'm kind of shocked at the level of personalization that I'm seeing in that. Um, I'm getting, I get like photos of somebody's dog who's upset that I didn't respond. <laughs> uh, it's like, I've not seen these tactics before. And what I, I guess what, you know, I think what I would say about that is I, I still feel like that's not really personalization. If it's, to be honest, if it's done by AI, unless I have entered into that model, what I know about that human being, yeah. it's not actually personalization. I think it's called that as a trend, but um, it doesn't feel personalized to me. It might have my name, the name of my organization in it, but, and they, you know, they do that really well now and they try to customize, but it's not authentic. So I I will tell you, you know, the work I do, it's very high touch. It's um it is um relationship based and and I can that's where we focus is on knowing our partners and bringing that human touch. Yeah. So I think there's a lot that it can do for us, but not everything, not the last mile <laughs> uh for me, not the last mile to the invitation and the engagement uh, can't be done that way. Yeah, it's a good reminder that, you know, sometimes what's automation or customization may not be personalization. And it's all how the recipient views it, right? And you talk right. about just kind of putting people at the center and the importance of listening. And, you know, if somebody uses technology to customize something and you feel like it's really personalized and it strikes a chord, then, then that's a win. But if they try that and it doesn't, like the person who's sending you a picture of her her dog is in a sales email, hoping that that's going to grab your attention. Um, and it doesn't. And so I think that's a good reminder for all of us. You know, we, we can't ignore all this technology. I mean, you know, our peers, our competitors, no. everybody's using it. We have to figure out how to benefit, but at the same time, that, that human element, the human touch and it is perhaps more important than ever 
because of, of all of this automation that's going on. Right, right. I still do personal handwritten notes, believe it or not. And our research also shows that young people, Gen Z, love that. Love handwritten postcard. Oh, wow. It's true. Um, it's kind of old school, but it's authentic. Yeah. And they like, that's one of their priorities, authentic. You know, I always like to close just by asking if there are any unlikely sources of, of inspiration that you've gotten advice or ideas that you've brought to your work. Um, and I know you are spending a lot of time with Gen Z. So I wondered if you wanted to just close with any last thoughts about what you've learned or are learning about uh, Gen Z as you engage them through the important work that Points of Light is doing. Yes, I, I thank you. And I think the word, you know, this is a in, chief influencer podcast. And I think influencer is is a great word. You guys know that that's like one of Webster's words last year, yeah. you know, word of the year was influencer. And they've certainly, you know, brought that to the forefront. But they are truly the influencers of, of taste and culture in our country. And they are now leading in that influencers in how we civically engage. They actually have, in our research at Points of Light, for all demographic groups, they were the group that engaged the most. They had done six civic actions last year in, in their in our in our recent survey. And of all the groups, they had done the most. They right. might look different, they might be different. You know, it's voting, it's advocacy, it's listening, learning, but um, they were the ones that had done those. So I, I want, I guess my, where I wanna end this is to encourage leaders to not discount that Gen Z voice and what they do. That voice has been something that I've, I've been privileged to have access to as a leader through youth development, but I'm building it in at points of light. And they, not just because it's nice to do, not just because they are future leaders, Gen Z are leaders today. And if we aren't connected to them or understand their preferences, how they're affecting business, our business, then we're really, we're really falling short. And so I have to be intentional now that I, I don't work in youth development to build those pathways for, for hearing from them and understanding their point of view. Um, but smart businesses are listening and changing uh, because of Gen Z. So that youth voice in, um, in your business model, in your uh, business's progress is, is extremely important and wouldn't discount it. Yeah, that's such a great lesson to end on. Um, you know, if you wanna be an influencer in your own um, organization or on the outside, there are just some incredible lessons that we heard from you today, Jennifer. Um, you wish that when you were younger, you had known to trust your gut more. And I think so much of it starts from that. That's really the foundation for authenticity. And then listen listen to the people who you serve, whether you're creating time slots for team members to meet with you or organizing formal roundtables that also build in that informal time because that's when folks might feel more comfortable and let their guard down. And then find those bright spots, those points of light and recognize them like you've done thousands of times now through the daily point of light, uh, points of light, which you know, not only shine light on those folks and make them feel special, but it also reflects back because people learn about the movement that you're leading and what you're doing. So 
I learned so much today that I am going to take away. And I know that everyone else probably has a nugget that they're going to bring back to the work they're doing. Jennifer Sarangelo, CEO of Points of Light. Thank you so much for being with us today. And congratulations on being recognized as a chief influencer yourself. Thanks, Anthony. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Chief Influencer, a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board. If you know a leader who should be featured as a chief influencer, please nominate them at chiefinfluencer.org. For show notes and more, visit us at chiefinfluencer.org or follow Chief Influencer on LinkedIn. Until next time.